Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Jason Porterfield as our guest to talk about his new book, Fight Like Jesus, how Jesus waged peace throughout Holy Week. Jason's passion is to cultivate God's shalom wherever it is painfully absent and to help churches embrace their peacemaking vocation. That is so exciting. Well, Jason, welcome to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, Jason, um, I was just telling Laura off the air here. So I'll say it on the air. Um, I get requests to write forwards and to write blurbs of people I've never heard of. And forwards I don't write except for friends. And then I got this manuscript right in the middle of when I was working on, um, I have a little book coming out in England and Fortress eventually in the United States called The Audacity of Peace. So I see this manuscript and think, well, I'm going to see what he has to say. This is a young guy who's probably up to date on everything. And I couldn't put it down. So <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to write a forward because I like this book. So um, I just want to thank you for the book and for the theme, for connecting it to Holy Week. But um, Jason, I think it's a fair to say that uh, uh, our listeners probably don't know who you are. Um, maybe you're famous and I don't know that, but tell us about yourself and where you're doing ministry and how this uh, book is reflect, uh, you know, reflects that ministry and shapes that ministry. Sure. Yeah. So in 2007, I joined a group called Servants. Servants is an international network of Christian communities in which everyone feels called to live and minister among the urban poor. So historically, that was in the slums of some of the megacities of Southeast Asia. Uh, Servants was started out of New Zealand in 1982 by a man named Viv Grigg. Uh, And so I joined them on New Year's Day, 2007. So it's easy to remember, right? The first day of a new year, I left my home in Pennsylvania, and I moved into Canada's poorest urban neighborhood, a section of Vancouver known as the downtown east side. Servants was getting a growing interest from North Americans to join. And so they thought, what would it look like to, to set up a sending office, but yet try to live out the principles and values that we've lived out in the slums of Asia in a Western context, because this idea of home and mission field, it's really a false dichotomy. And so that was their first experiment uh, in Vancouver. So I joined them to help start that community. Uh, The downtown east side, it's small. It's just four by eight city blocks, yet it's home on on any given night, you'll find 5,000 neighbors struggling with drug addictions, uh, 1,200 experiencing homelessness, and 900 women trapped in prostitution on any given night. So I knew all that before I moved there, but that was about the extent of my homework. Um, I moved there thinking of myself as a peacemaker. Uh, I grew up uh, at a Southern Baptist church. My parents were both in the military. So most of my upbringing was uh, Christian mission was verbal evangelism and, and doctrinal discipleship. But for college, I went to a school called Messiah College, or now it's called Messiah University. And so that school is historically Anabaptist, uh, Brethren in Christ, to be specific. And it was there, you know, 9-11 happened my freshman year. Um, so lots of formative discussions during during my college years about, you know, when Jesus says, love your enemies, does that 
mean don't kill them you know things like that um got introduced to the works of ron Sider as well rich christians in an age of hunger for example spent some time with some christian communities that had moved in to uh, camden new jersey which was ranked the worst city in america back then um so all these formative experiences led me to move to the downtown east side thinking of myself as a peacemaker uh, in other words i felt called to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet broken neighborhood but like I said, I didn't do much homework, and so I was blindsided when just three weeks after I arrived, the jury trial began in a nearby courthouse for Robert Picton, the man we would all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. So for over a, a decade, Picton would drive into the downtown east side, pick up one of the women engaged in prostitution, take her back to his pig farm, and kill her. And by the time of his arrest, as he actually later confessed to an undercover cop posing as a cellmate, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women, mostly from the downtown east side. And so, you know, I mean, needless to say, my neighbors were devastated. They were scared and, and, and they were angry. And it didn't take long before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. And I realized that I was a failure of a peacemaker. I had no idea how to make peace, uh, bring peace to this neighborhood. So so to connect this to the book, one day I, I dragged myself to church, and it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And just like at most churches, this church, they turned the day into a joyous occasion. You know, the, the classic scenes, the kids parading through the sanctuary, waving palm branches. We all sh shout, Hosanna. We sing some upbeat hymns. And I was just in no mood to celebrate. So I remember sitting in the pew while everyone else stood to sing another happy song. And I cried out to God and I just said, Jesus, teach me how to be a peacemaker. Teach me, please. And so when, when the sermon began, I decided to read my Bible rather than listen to the feel-good message. And so I thought, well, I'll open to one of the Gospels and read their account of Palm Sunday. And I randomly chose Luke's account. And that's when I noticed something that's it's forever changed my life. Luke says that as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting cheers, but Jesus was shedding tears. And when he could remain silent no more, he cried out for everyone to hear, if only you knew on this of all days the things that make for peace. So as I sat in that pew all, the years, all those years ago, I realized where the answer to my prayer was to be found. You know, I mean, it's taken years to unpack the implications of that discovery, but I realized then and there that if I was going to ever be effective at confronting injustice and calling out oppressors and contending for the flourishing of my neighbors, then I had to study the greatest peacemaker's greatest week, or what we call Holy Week. Well, that's quite the, uh, quite the introduction, and I hope uh, uh, I gave a copy of your book to to our pastor Amanda, hmm. and uh, I'm hoping that that she will resonate with this theme because I think your introduction sets the tone for a different approach to Holy Week uh, than many of us have. I mean, you, um, I think um, that your approach is that Jesus begins Holy Week on the theme of lament rather than. Um, can't wait till Sunday. Uh, you know, that, that's yeah. sort of what happens in our churches. And, and you know, we, we can't diminish the significance of resurrection. All right. But um, it is a, a lament week. And I'd like, I'd like um, if you could, uh, 
in your book, Fight Like Jesus, and in your own teaching and, and thinking, how you think lament reshapes how we think about that whole week. Mm. I know I know you could go on for two hours about this. But, uh, I, <laughs> how about I a two-minute version, huh? Yeah, two, three, <laughs> five minutes, I don't care. Yeah. So, so the passion with which Jesus spoke that lament is pretty uncharacteristic. It's only the, the second time we hear of Jesus weeping. The other time was during Lazarus' death, you know, but this time uh, no one else is crying, just him, right? And so I think the passion with which he spoke reveals that this was, this was at the forefront of his, his thoughts as he entered into his final days. You know, if only people knew the things that make for peace. And, and as I argue in the, in the book, with that lament, Jesus uh, began a campaign that each day he contended for our peace, and each day he sought to correct the misguided methods we use to make and maintain peace. When he spoke of things in the plural that make for peace, he revealed we can't reduce his peacemaking efforts to just one solitary act, the, the cross. It's the culmination, to be sure. Um, but my concern is that if we, if we jump from Palm Sunday to Friday and then to Easter Sunday, right, we, we brush aside all the days leading up to Friday as unimportant, as incidental. And, and that's what we tend to do in most churches. We commemorate Palm Sunday and then do nothing else till at best Thursday evening. We might have a Maundy Thursday service. But I'm convinced that Jesus was crucified on Friday precisely because of how he contended for peace on the previous days of Holy Week. And when we fail to recognize that, then we, we may cling to the cross of Christ for our salvation yet be embracing the very approach to peacemaking that justified nailing him to that cross. Hmm. Um, but back to your question of what role does lament play in all of this as well? You know, years after living in Vancouver, I, I had, was fortunate enough to have formed a, a team that was big enough to move and start a, a community in the slums of Jakarta, Indonesia. And my family, we were only there a year before they asked us to come back and, and lead the, the sending office. But thankfully, that community is still there. But a few months after we returned from Jakarta, the, the slum community got eviction notices. Some wealthy landowner paid a bribe got the rights to the land and was going to build a shopping mall. It happened so often to slums. Mm. So families that had lived there for 10, 20 years. And it became like a scene, you know, like the siege of Jerusalem. Like first crews came in with chainsaws and, and cut down all the trees. And for a community that was so densely populated to lose their trees, they still had left room for trees, you know. And then they offered like $5 to families to leave. And as soon as a family left, they bulldozed down that house so no one else could move in. So now you got these piles of rubble with just these little islands of homes, these holdouts remaining. And my teammates that were still there, they didn't know what to do other than to cry out in prayer. So they, they closed their door and they started to pray some of the Psalms of Lament. And what they didn't realize was some of their Muslim neighbors were outside the door and they heard them reading these Psalms of Lament. And, and so the next morning they had a knock on the door and the neighbor said, can we join you? We didn't know you could cry out and lament like this to God. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's just such a place for lament. Sometimes most days when you contend for peace feel like Saturday. It's hard to see how God's at work. It seems like God's absent. It's maybe we can't see how God's at work beneath the surface, you know. Um, and so there's a, a an important place for lament. Lament and uh, let's. I mean, can you um, can you illustrate it with any of the uh, let's say the traditional uh, celebrations during the week, 
of course, other than Friday, but like Monday, Thursday, or what happens on Tuesday and Wednesday, Monday, anything, anything that can get, let's just say, if we tell people on Sunday that this is a week of lament, and then they don't show up till Friday, mm-hmm. they're going to go, what does this have? To, I mean, of course, Friday can be lament, uh, but Christian evangelical churches especially don't do very well on Good Friday. They want to they want to talk about atonement theory, yeah, uh, rather than the experience of losing Jesus. So, I wonder if you have any suggestions for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. So, I mean, the book goes day by day through Holy Week. So yes. there's a chapter for each day. And yeah. and I, I would say, ultimately, we see Jesus lamenting at other times throughout the week, certainly. But what we above all see him doing is the very thing he lamented about, <laughs> that mm-hmm. we don't know the things that make for peace. So we see him making peace. We see him uh, correcting the misguided methods we use to make peace. But for example... I mean, let's get specific. The triumphal entry, right? Or I would probably, and many others call it the not-so-triumphal entry. Uh, so so you have the, the crowd's actions. What does that signify? Well, we, we read that uh, the crowds shout, are chanting Hosanna, which I always thought meant like hallelujah, like it was a synonym to hallelujah or praise God. But uh, Hosanna, it comes from, it's an Aramaic form of a two-part Hebrew word, Hoshia and Na which literally means liberate us now or save us, please, uh, deliver us, we, we pray. It, it's a cry for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then you, we also read that the crowds put their coats on the ground. Well, that's how you coronate a new king. That's what they did for Jehu, for example, when they coronated him as king. They also quote a psalm, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add a few words not found in the psalm, the king of Israel. And then there's the palm branches. And the palm branches, you know, I thought, I always thought they were the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands you see at sporting events, you know, like, like waving them meant you're awesome, Jesus, I'm your number one fan. But, but they actually were connected in the Jewish people's mind to a very specific event, the Maccabean Revolt. Mm. So almost 200 years before, if I can give a very brief history lesson, in about 167 BC, uh, the Seleucid king comes in and he ransacks Jerusalem and he slaughters an unclean pig on the altar in the temple and then sprinkles its blood throughout the place. And then he decrees that the priests throughout the region have to offer sacrifices to his gods and he sends inspectors from town to town to make sure this is carried out. So one of the inspectors, when he gets to a little village called Modin, uh, one of the Jewish priests agrees to offer a sacrifice to these pagan gods, but there's an older Jewish priest named Mattathias who uh, lunges forward, stabs his fellow priest to death, kills the inspector, tears down the altar, and then flees to the mountains. And soon after, his health deteriorates, and his five sons gather around him, and he says to them, his dying words are this, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay Mm. back the Gentiles in full. So his third son, his middle son, Judas, uh, takes that rally cry, and he starts to lead a pretty successful armed revolt. In fact, he's so fierce in battle, they give him the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And (laughs) and when they start to get Israel back, so there's a, a triumphal entry, there's a cleansing of the temple there, and they're waving palm branches. And so then they start minting their own coins, and on the coins they put palm branches, and they encircle it with the battle cry for the redemption of Zion. And uh, W.R. France, in in one of his commentaries, points out that later, uh, with the Jewish-Roman wars, 
66 through 70 AD and what is it 135 I think if I'm remembering right mm-hmm. when they started to gain uh, some you know they thought they were going to get their freedom back they start minting their own coins again and what do they do they put palm branches on again so it becomes the symbol for liberation right it's like a separatist movement flag today so waving them is saying we we long to be free and what's more waving them at Jesus means we think you're our liberator you're coming in the likeness of Judas Maccabeus to bring a hammer down upon our enemies. So what does Jesus do? Well, we know he has the donkey, right? Which John tells us in an important parenthetical aside that it's to fulfill Zechariah's vision of this peaceable king, this king who comes to remove the weapons of war from his own people and to speak peace to all nations. So one aspect that we don't often pay attention to is that Jesus entered on the first day of Passover, this this uh, important week in the Jewish life to remember the time God liberated his people from a, from a foreign superpower, you know, Egypt, and now it's Rome, uh, that Jesus entered on the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, the first day of Passover, which was the day when all those who came for Passover were to select their lambs. It was lamb selection day, and the lambs we know were mostly supplied from Bethlehem. And the route that Jesus took and the route that the sheep would have taken line up after they crossed the, the Kidron Valley, and they would have come in almost certainly together through the sheep gate was the most obvious gate. And so here's this, it's subtle yet unambiguous way in which Jesus says, I, I'm not coming as the hammer of God. I'm mm. coming as the lamb of God. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, each day of Holy Week, there's, there's these lessons like that. Well, that's, that was fantastic, Jason. And, and this is one of the things that I really liked about your book is that it's an accessible study. I mean, this isn't written for uh, a Cambridge University seminar in New Testament studies that will be attended by 14 PhD students <laughs> and three sleepy professors. <laughs> it's, it's historically informed, and it's very accessible for anybody who cares about that last week and who cares about it as peace. And the, uh, that Passover theme is so important. And it is, um, it is something that, um, as an Anglican, irritates me, if not every week, three out of four weeks hmm. of the Eucharist, is that our uh, Eucharist liturgy, the sacramental service, simply has, I would say, virtually no, I mean, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, uh, but it is almost no theme of liberation. Mm. And that uh, that dream, that vision of what was operating for every Jew at Passover, Passover was one dangerous event yeah. on the calendar. You, know, you have the procurators, prefects, whatever, down in Caesarea Maritima, who come to Jerusalem basically only three times a year. And this is one of the times because this is dangerous stuff. And Josephus records numerous events that occur during Passover week of riots and fights and people throwing lemons. (laughs) It's a funny thing. Uh, And, you know, people doing symbolic things to to, um, express their hope for liberation. And when uh, I think it's it's pretty easy to dramatize how much Jews in the first century hated Rome, and that's, that's just simply not true. Uh, but there was 
uh, within virtually every Jewish household an aspiration that they could be in charge of their land again, that they would be in charge of that temple, and that the Roman people could be sent packing in their boats and in their chariots and go home and leave us alone. This is the theme of Zechariah's song in, in the beginning of Luke, is that, you know, leave us alone and we'll worship God. And so Passover, tied to Eucharist, becomes a meal that at least has a lot of a sense of liberation from oppression. And so lament that begins the week um, is can be tied to Passover as as the theme of liberation. I mean, I'm talking too much. What what do you have to say about? That? No, I mean that's exactly right. It's so important to remember the context that this is Passover week. Passover had a, a history of inciting revolt, not just yeah. symbolic, but sometimes actual murdering yeah. and death, which is why Rome required, like you said. Uh, Pontius Pilate to leave his home in Caesarea Maritima and bring reinforcements so that the threat of force would deter any future uh, thoughts of starting an uprising. Uh, you know, in, in the Friday chapter of the book, I, I look first at Luke 4, the start of Jesus's public ministry, his inaugural address of sorts that culminates in in his listeners in, in the synagogue, his hometown, uh, trying to kill him, right? When he, mm-hmm. as soon as he points out that uh, this good news that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, etc., that it's not just for them. Uh, and he tells these two examples of Elijah and Elisha showing mercy to outsiders. And the second example is mercy to uh, a leader in a foreign army, Naaman. Um, it says that they, they drag him out of the town and they try to throw him over a cliff. Well, during the Day of Atonement, traditionally the, the priest would take a goat, the scapegoat, and he would confess all the sins of Israel, thus transferring those sins onto the goat. And then they'd lead the goat out into the wilderness to die. Mm-hmm. But over time, a problem emerged. On more than one occasion, that pesky goat ventured back into the city. And so a new <laughs> tradition emerged where they would take the goat out of the city and toss it over a cliff. So if Jesus only came to die to save us of our sins, this, this message of forgiveness then that would have been a beautiful way to die. Just incarnate as an adult, <laughs> give a contentious message to some people, get thrown over a cliff. You know, we'd have dead ta- uh, goats tattooed on our arm, you know, we'd, uh, and it would be a beautiful way to die. We'd remember how Jesus was our scapegoat. But, <laughs> but instead, Jesus chose to die on Friday for Passover as a Paschal lamb. Now, I'm not saying forgiveness is not part of it. I mean, his first words on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But even that forgiveness, I would argue, is to be rooted in the overall theme of liberation. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, um, I don't, Jason, you probably don't know this, but I, I have a translation of the New Testament sitting at the publisher. And um, I'm, I was struck by how bland the translations are of the New Testament when it comes to themes of liberation. Hmm. And maybe I've overdone it. I'm letting out secrets here. Uh, but I think that word, uh, I think several of the atonement words are words about liberation. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we translate things like redeem and ransom. And those are such nice religious terms. But 
their socio-political context is completely ignored when we use this. We we connect them to atonement theory rather than to a group's vision for the kingdom of God, for justice, and for peace. So yeah. I I really liked uh, that your book talked about Passover as much as it did. Um, you know, your book is really a book for people to read one day at a time uh, during Holy Week. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things you can help our readers and try to incite them to purchase your book and read it is what we, let's just say, what can we do um, during Holy Week or as we anticipate Holy Week to become agents of peace in our society? What are the, what are the kinds of things that that week puts on the table for Christians so that they become agents of peace in our world? That's a great question. So one of the things I argue in the opening chapter is that if you want to learn, if you want to become a practitioner of Jesus's approach to peacemaking, there's no better place to look than Holy Week. Now, most books on peacemaking tend to look at the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for that, I admit, it contains the core of Jesus's peace teaching. But when I was in the downtown east side, I didn't know, for example, how do I love my enemy and my neighbor as myself uh, when my enemy is currently oppressing my neighbor? How do you do that? And the beautiful thing about Holy Week is it is the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. So formally uh, abstract principles like be merciful, they find concrete expression, and those lofty ethical ideals such as love your enemies, they become grounded in actual events. So this book, it is a commentary on Holy Week, but it's, it also contains peacemaking lessons gleaned from each day's events to help equip us to be more faithful and effective in our own efforts to wage peace. So in one hand, I could just kind of rattle off a whole bunch of the peacemaking lessons in answer to your question, but, but I'll, I guess maybe on a big picture level to answer your question, you know, in historic peace church traditions, especially in centuries past, there, there have been debates about when we're called to be peacemakers, does that mean we just passively don't get involved in conflicts? Or is there an active waging for peace? And I think that conversation is understandable when you just look at Jesus's peace teaching, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you look at how active Jesusly confronted injustice during Holy Week, it feels like that debate settled. You know, the temple cleansing on Monday, uh, temporarily decommercializing the temple and putting a stop to its marginalizing practices of corralling foreigners into this court of the Gentiles, welcoming in the blind and lame who were not allowed to come into the temple. You know, we forget that part of of Monday's actions. Um, Tuesday, he has the audacity to go back to the temple where they first tried to bait him with these unanswerable questions in hopes of that he'll misspeak and his followers will turn on him. And there's so many peacemaking lessons there in his answers. And then he goes on the initiative uh, and critiques the religious leaders, culminating in the seven woes. Uh, so, you know, there we see Jesus being willing to speak truth to power to those who have the power to kill him and, and did. Uh, and so there's lessons there. Wednesday, we see Jesus dining at the home of Simon the leper, uh, practicing the very thing he finished Tuesday saying, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick. You visited me. So we see Jesus in action Thursday. And, you know, the 
in the upper room. He washes his disciples' feet, including one he knew was about to betray him. And then as Catholic activist uh, John Deere pointed out, he then creates this new nonviolent covenant. He, he doesn't break the bread mm. and say, this is my enemy's body, break it for me, and this is my enemy's blood, pour it out for me. No, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Uh, and so uh, all throughout Thursday night in the garden, you know, Peter, put your sword away for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, this wasn't, uh, as uh, Murray mm. Hubbard says, mm. uh, it's not a the time is not right kind of prohibition. It's a the time is never right kind of prohibition. And that's what the early church picked up on. When Christ disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian, Tertullian, you know. So um, every day that's there are just good. some beautiful right, now, lessons to teach us, including um, Saturday here's and the Sunday. I'm being asked. You're, you're unprepared for this in your book, so uh, you can punt if you want. But how do we, I assume you're a pacifist Uh-oh. of some sort. How, how do we respond to Ukraine and Russia right now as pacifists? Such an important question. I've had a number of readers yeah contact me and say just that you know your book was really persuasive but ukraine (laughs) um (laughs) and it's an important question to ask you know i uh, well above all to help in any way we can helping refugees um praying for an end to this war but I, i would point out a few things um you know first of all ukraine has a beautiful history of effective nonviolent resistance even from 2013, 2014. And in fact, when Russia uh, took Crimea, just soon after, the, it was the Kiev International Institute of Sociology. They actually did a survey, a national survey in Ukraine and said, if a foreign power was to come invade and occupy our country, how should we resist? And the most common answer was nonviolent resistance. So there's a culture and an openness among the people of Ukraine to consider nonviolent ways of resisting occupation. And then I would point to, you know, Chenoweth and, and Stephen. Uh, they wrote a great book, Why Civil Resistance Works. And they surveyed the historical record of anti-occupational struggles from 1900 to 2006. And they found that nonviolent resistance was twice as effective as armed resistance. And even if armed resistance was successful or it failed, it, so either way, armed resistance resulted in a much higher loss of human life, loss to infrastructure, and was far less likely to result in a healthy democracy within years after that. Um, so I, you know, I guess the last thing I would say on the question of Ukraine is that's our problem, isn't it? You know? um, but yeah. again, you know, I'm sitting in the comfort, uh, you know, of a table and a chair. So who knows for sure how I would respond uh, if I was there. So that's the first thing to say. I hope I would respond in what I'm advocating for in this book, the, how I see Jesus waging peace. But I can't say for sure, right? But I would say the current tactic, uh, you know, Putin's greatest strength is his military might. You know, it. Uh, Ukraine's forces are dwarfed compared to it. And the fact that he's got 6,000 nuclear warheads at his fingertip has prevented the substantial global support for for Ukraine. It's prevented allies from being able to be directly involved militarily. But Putin has a great weakness too. And that's that he lacks substantial support amongst Russians. 
And what little support he has seems to be based on a lie, right? That a lie that takes great effort for him to suppress the truth from getting out to his own people. But the Ukrainians have some great strengths and weaknesses too. Their, their greatest weakness is their military is no match to Russia's. Uh, and though they have a whole bunch of allies, they, they can't get the military support they need. But they have some great strengths. That already that commitment to nonviolence or that openness to nonviolence. And then the passion, the unified passion and willingness to die for their cause. Uh, and so I, I, my concern is that the current mm -hmm. tactic is trying to resist Putin's greatest strength with their greatest weakness. And, and the actual result, especially this language of speaking of Russian soldiers as enemies or uh, evil, right? It actually helps Putin chip away at his greatest weakness because he can use that to galvanize support yeah. uh, where it's currently weak. And so I, I wish that, well, there are stories that just don't make the news very often yeah. of Christian leaders and others pleading with Christians in Russia, the, the head of the patriarch, uh, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, other Orthodox leaders pleading with them to speak out, um, priests writing these letters. You know, I, I had a a dream about a week ago, and I'm not saying it's from God, but I had a dream in which a whole bunch of, of priests in Ukraine uh, barricaded uh, across all the bridges going into Kiev, and uh, they set up a table instead of other forms of barricades. And on the table, they had a banner that just said, we refuse to be enemies, and they had food and water. And behind them were a whole bunch of grandmothers and grandfathers that set up tables. And the tanks, they bulldozed over the, the priests. But by the third or fourth table, they finally stopped and they sat down and had a conversation. Now, that, that's just a dream. But I think when and we are immersed ourselves in the creative, nonviolent ways of Jesus, we can like come up with some pretty creative solutions. To talk about uh, nonviolence and peace when so many people mm -hmm. are losing their lives defending their nation. And, and it can come off as sort of a highbrow... Uh, yeah. Con condemning attitude toward such things. So, and I, I really appreciated how how you just talked about it. Uh, the other side is um, nonviolence, in a yeah. sense, is not a theory of how to win, but it's a it's a way of how to live like Jesus in a very difficult situation where Putin uh, mm. wants to take advantage of people, and he'll find ways to take advantage. But I really think your your um, your point of of calling them enemies uh could be a, a good strategy is to say the I, i've seen several on cnn uh reports of people in different parts of the ukraine saying these are our russians are we speak russian that's our language these are our friends and our family we're not they're not our enemies and um, i think we could yeah. use a lot more of that but uh Jason, I just really like your book, yeah. and I'm I'm grateful uh, to God for you, and for your work in Vancouver. I read a book about a, another pastor. I can't remember. It was a uh, maybe a Whiff and Stock book. Um, I want to say maybe his name was Dykstra, um, who was working in a ministry in uh, in that in that area of Vancouver, and how difficult it was, and they were building churches, you know, forming community uh, that translated out of the church into the community. So I appreciate that, and mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate that um, this could be a very fresh approach in this Holy Week especially for 
contemplating peace. And maybe uh, Laura, who, who who's thinking of sermons that she could be preaching that week, uh, will will take some cues from from this. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm already taking notes for my Palm Sunday ser- sermon, so I appreciate this. This is super helpful. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Holy Week oh, is yeah. arguably one of the most sacred weeks in the Christian calendar, mm. but it's also one of the most stressful for pastors, right? It's, you have it's a lot. Increased attendance, extra <laughs> services to prepare for, and, right. and that unrealistic expectation that you'll preach on the same events year after year, but find fresh new ways to do so. <laughs> so exactly. Uh, so I do hope the book would be a good resource for yeah, pastors. I really, yeah, I really appreciate that. Well, and I hope for our listeners, too, that you will consider picking up this book, Fight Like Jesus. You will be hearing this episode, hopefully, if you hear it when it comes out, right as we head into Holy Week. So I hope that you all will pick this up and use it as a guide um, to process and to think about the peace of Jesus um, and and the fight that Jesus brought, which was to bring peace, which is to bring our peace. So I, I really appreciate that. Well, I want to thank our listeners and thank Jason, and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. Thank you.